Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. These things are right to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. You may be seated. God is good all the time. Cindy. Gary said this morning that Cindy Weatherford placed membership, and I'm thinking, who is Cindy Weatherford? Because when Jay introduced, introduced you to me, he said, this is my cousin Cindy, and I've just been calling her cousin Cindy ever since. So now I know the rest of the story as it is. Uh, when my dad and uncles were boys, all through middle school and high school, granddaddy would take every one of them on the first day of school to their classes. Now, why I tell you this is because granddaddy was a captain with the Metro Nashville Police Department. And when he went, he was in his uniform, and he would take each of them to their classes on the first day of school. He would introduce himself, I'm Captain Brown, this is my son Jim, or Bo, or Bill, or Andy, whichever one it was. And he would say to the teacher, I expect them to mind you, and I expect you to make them mind. And if they get in trouble, I expect you to punish them, and I expect you to let me know about it. It was not only the teacher that was being put on notice, but it was also a good conversation for them to overhear. Now, when they grew up, and I grew up the same way, if you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home, and the trouble at home was a lot worse than the trouble at school. Anybody else grow up like that? few of us did, yeah, hands going up left and right. I got a paddling one time in school. I was a sophomore. Now, I don't think I deserved it. You may disagree, but you're prone to be wrong. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, his name is Chad Kowalski. What a name, Kowalski. And uh, now he was causing trouble, and uh, the teacher, Miss Lassiter, she said, go to the office. And he got up, and he, 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 he calmed down right quick. And I just said, see you, Kowalski. She said, you go with him. That's all I did. I promise you, that's all I did. Cause I, and I was like, okay. And so I get up there, and we're both sitting there. And, uh, you know, it's like a couple of death row inmates right outside the principal's office. And um, so we're there, and uh, the assistant principal, thankfully it was just him, but he, anytime you had to discipline a student, you had to have another adult present. And so he had the head football coach, of course. I was looking in the principal's office, making sure, because the principal, Mr. Cordell, his mother and my Graham were best friends. And if Mr. Cordell found out that I got in trouble, then granddaddy would hear about it, and then daddy would hear about it, and I would not be here to preach to you today. So, luckily, God smiled on me, and Mr. Cordell was not in that day. 
But the assistant principal brought us in together and set us down and was really raking us over the coals. What'd you do? And of course, we weren't going to lie because Miss Lassiter came up there and kind of told, you know, these boys need straightening out. And then she went back to her room. And I just said, sir, all I did was say, see you, Kowalski. You know, I was just telling him bye. (laughs) But he said, well, you're going to get it too. And he said, you have two options. One was paddling. The other was ISS, in-school suspension. The third was we're going to call your folks. I said, I would like the paddling. I will volunteer as tribute. And so anyway... I had this big old wallet. This thing was like, it, it, it really looked like a checkbook holder, but you could put your cash and all your stuff. And I had it in my back right pocket. And so, no joke, he made me lean over like this, hold the hands of this chair facing the wall. And I'm thinking, good thing I got that wallet in. He said, son, take out your wallet and put it in the chair. Oh, okay. So I did, and I was to get three. Three in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I, I, I reckon. So I gripped it, and that first one comes, and the blood rushed to my head, and that's about all I could get out. And then I took the other two, and I walked out, and it, it, it was sore for a little bit. But behavior is definitely something that was big in my family. Acting right, doing right. And if you get in trouble wherever you are, the rule was, you better tell me first, because if I have to hear it from the school, it's going to be that much worse. So I often told on myself in order to avoid the full wrath of daddy. Well, as a kid, whenever we would go to places, depending on the place, uh, usually I, as we arrived at the parking lot, I would receive preliminary instructions as to how I was to behave wherever it was we were going. For example, if we were going to a funeral visitation, I was given the instructions, you will not laugh, you will not giggle, you will stand, and you will not horseplay. Because these people are hurting because of their loss. And so I was like a soldier in line whenever we went to a funeral visitation. And very often I heard the preliminary instructions because we would go to something it would be full of adults and not that many children. Daddy would remind me, children are to be seen and not heard. Now you probably all think that's outdated and you probably don't agree with it. And that's okay, you didn't raise me and I probably needed it. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he was giving him the layout as to how church should be done. We might call it etiquette, but more or less, it was divine revelation. So my first big boy job outside of high school, I interviewed and was hired to work for Comcast Cable Company in Nashville, Tennessee. And that was, but what, 01, I think it was, 2000, 2001, somewhere thereabout. And so you go to your training, you learn the, the, the book knowledge, you take tests. Uh, occasionally in the several weeks, I think it's a month and a half training, uh, one day a week you would be paired with someone who was already doing the job and you would go along, they would tell you to do stuff and, and you would do it. And uh, 
then after the training, then you did ride-alongs for a, a, a decent period, about 90 days. And then you were finally given your own van with all your own equipment and all your own jobs every day. And you'd have to organize those jobs and you'd have to arrive on time and you'd have to do... Now, contrary to what many, you know, there's the old cliche that cable people, when are you going to be there? Uh, sometime between sunup and sundown. And then they show up for 24 hours after. Uh, that, that's the, I was always struggling to be on time and I'd call ahead if I was late. But anyway, once you're set free, you, you're like, okay, now I got to think for myself. Now I got to do for myself. And, and I've got to make this work. Now, you could call someone if you weren't sure what to do, and, and they would help you. Sometimes the, the, the veterans would come out and, and help you with a problem if you needed it. But when you're on your own, it could be a little scary at first. Timothy has, thus far, he has had the instruction in the Scriptures. Second Timothy tells us that his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, did this very thing. They brought him up in the Scriptures. He has also traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys, and he has seen firsthand what to do, how to do it. Now, however, he set out to do it on his own. And Paul writes 1 Timothy in order to give him instructions pertinent to the situations of the church at Ephesus so that Timothy knows this is what you are to do. So I want to read once more the passage that Rodney read, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. This tells us the whole purpose of this letter. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write it so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So turn with me to chapter 1. And let's just see what exactly he is telling Timothy to do. What are some of the things that they're facing there? And how is it that you, Timothy, can navigate leading this congregation? The letter begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the typical uh, greeting or heading of a letter in that time. You know, when we're in grade school, we'll, we're taught how to address a letter, you know, a, 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 a professional letter, a private letter. Dear sir, ma'am, whatever the case is, there's the body of the message, then sincerely you sign your name. In their time, you began by address, uh, uh, announcing who is the author. So Paul does that. Then he announces the recipient of the letter, who is Timothy. Then he gives his greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and from sincere faith from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for a lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners for the unholy and profane, for murderers, 
of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. If you were to go on to any of the Brotherhood University websites, say Harding or Freed Hardeman, they have a, or they used to, they may still have, a section on that website where, where they uh, show you the churches that are looking for a minister. And sometimes some of them have ministers that are looking for congregations to serve. But it's always interesting when you read the description just how lovely it sounds. We have a brother in Christ, uh, Dale Jenkins, who he and his brother Jeff run a website. And on that website, they'll send out an email. It's called Scoops. And the Scoops portion are all the churches that are looking for ministers. And so they usually put what kind of congregation they are, what they're looking for. And what always has struck me is that they all, most of them will say, we're looking for someone to teach sound doctrine. I, I, I kind of thought that was already assumed, but they felt the need to point that out. Anyway, and they use it when, you know, we want, uh, and sometimes the descriptions are so odd. We want a guy that's 20 years old and energetic, but he has to have 40 years of experience. Is, is how some of them read. What they don't tell you, and even if you go through the interview process, they will not tell you, here are the problems that we as a congregation are facing. Usually, preachers have to discover that for themselves. And then, many times, they think, what have I gotten myself into? Not the case here, if, you, if you're wondering. The elders when, and I, six years ago, when we sat and met for the first time and talked, they were forthcoming as I was or tried to be. And when you go in eyes wide open, you know better how to serve. Timothy's familiar with this church, and he's aware that there are some who want to be teachers of the law. And there are a couple of scriptures in the Bible, Luke 15 and Acts 5.34, where uh, the scribes are referred to as teachers of the law. Gamaliel, who, who taught Mo, uh, excuse me, Paul, he also is referred to as a teacher of the law. So it may have been someone who may have had a, a measure of learning, or they thought they did, and they were trying to teach the law in tandem with Christianity. But Paul points out that, you know, it's causing more confusion than anything. And in addition to that, you've got in verse 4, there are those who are talking about fables and endless genealogies, and those things are causing dispute rather than godly edification. And we learn later in this letter in chapter 4, verse 7, uh, that Paul says in 4, 7, reject profane and old wives' fables, literally myths, and exercise yourself toward godliness. Now, to you and me, that may not be as important as it was to them. Uh, genealogies are very important to people in the East as opposed to those of us here in the West. Uh, many of the lawgivers of the ancient world, for example, Moses was the lawgiver of Israel. Uh, Solon, I believe, was the, the, the lawgiver perhaps of the Spartans. You have all these 
prominent historical figures that were lawgivers. But in Ephesus, at least, where Timothy's ministering, you've got a religious capital of paganism, and then you have the church of God. And you have all these shrines of idolatry. You have the shrine to Artemis. You have uh, the Agora there at Ephesus. You also have the Colosseum, or their particular version of the Colosseum. So it may have been that some of the converts to Christianity, they still held to some of their old pagan ways of thinking, and that was creating a little bit of distrust. But even in the midst of the problems that they're facing, I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. So you face all these problems, and some people are like bulls in a china shop when they try to solve the problems. you got to go in, make a bunch of noise, tear a bunch of things down, make your presence known, and then try to fix them. I think Paul is trying to recenter Timothy. Though you're facing these trials, remember that the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. So when you deal with people, let that be your compass. Let that be the thing that guides you. So Timothy is left to bring a measure of sanity to a church that disputes existed in. So he needed to know the issues he faced so that he could uh, actually manage whatever it was that he had to manage. Paul says that the law is good when it's used lawfully, verse 8, because such instructed in the ways of righteousness. But there's this term here, sound doctrine. You'll notice it in verse 11. Excuse me, verse 10, sound doctrine. I think it's interesting that we look at that because you and I have in mind what we believe sound doctrine is. Uh, I think we ought to let Scripture define it, and if it defines it as we do, then we're on the right track. But if it doesn't, then we need to amend our definition of it. The word that is used, translated sound, is more often than not used as good health in other passages in the New Testament. Uh, for example, those who are well, those who are sound, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Jesus said. Uh, 3 John 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in the things and be in health, but literally to be sound, to be healthy, just as your soul prospers. When the prodigal son returned, he was received safe and sound. There's that word again. And it's the same word in Greek that's used in all these passages. Sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. We can agree on that. But it also carries with it uh, the life conformed to sound doctrine. It's not just what you believe. It is what you believe, but it's how what you believe leads you to live that way. Now, some people today would say, you know what? I, give me Jesus. I don't want doctrine, right? Doctrine is divisive. Give me Jesus. Well, here's my reply to that. You cannot separate the truths about Jesus from the person of Jesus. So to throw the baby out with the bathwater is not going to be any helpful. Doctrine is there because those truths are tied to the reality and the truth that God has given to us. People that denounce doctrine in that way, 
I think, fail to understand how important it is. Now, you can go to the other extreme and make it so that all Christianity is is an academic exercise devoid of a right heart and right living. But I want you to take note of sound doctrine. And, and it might have been, had this existed in our time, we might have responded to it differently. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. People today would have said, you know, it really doesn't matter if you believe he came in the flesh or not. You love him, I love him. We can agree to disagree. That's the attitude of many a Christian today. Well, you have your way of looking at it. I have my way of looking at it. But the most important thing is we both believe in the Lord. We both know the Lord. And, you know, we we just won't get to heaven. John, however, says on this, what we might consider minute part of doctrine, that he came in. Does it really matter if we believe he came in the flesh or not? John says, yes, it does. And if you say he didn't come in the flesh... That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Sometimes the things that we are willing to dismiss, I think we're willing to dismiss at our own fault because we may consider them a small, minor, insignificant point. I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't matter what you or I think. It matters what Scripture says. We can be right in understanding Scripture. And we can also be wrong in understanding Scripture. But that's why it's important to study. That's why it's important to give yourself to reading of Scripture. Most of us have more than one Bible in our household. How often is it read? How often is it read? Has it gathered dust? I just ask you to think on it. In other passages, Paul ties sound doctrine to behavior. So I've put these passages up here. I want to read them. The first one is chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, where he talks about all the different types of sins that uh, the law instructs against. And that is in accordance with sound doctrine. So you have the right belief tied to the right action. Now let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Timothy. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. 
So as it, pertain, as it pertains to doctrine, it's not only what we believe, but it's how we live. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. You've heard these words before, and they are as relevant today as they were then. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. I can't tell you how discouraging and hard it can be when you strive to teach sound doctrine and you're met with a reply of how a person feels and how they want to feel. If there's one thing that I wish every one of us could understand, um, it's not to say there should be no feeling whatsoever. But we shouldn't be driven by our feelings, our emotions, our desires. Um, hopefully, whatever God is pleased with, that informs our emotions. I'll give you an example. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching to the crowd that was before him, we get to verse 37 and it says, They were pricked to the heart. Because of what he preached, it hit them in their emotions. And their emotions led them to ask that question, men and brethren, what shall we do? People today, however, when they're pricked at the heart, they don't ask, what shall we do? They say, I think I'd like to do this because it would make me feel better about it. One of the things we have to do is check our emotions. We have to check our emotions. Is it what God wants? Is it pleasing to God? And if we cannot be pleased in that, there's something wrong with us. Not something wrong with the Lord. All right, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. There's a lot of verses I'm reading here. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I've got a heading on that part of my Bible. It says, qualities of a sound church. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, Sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is, an op who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not lacking, not answering back, but not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Okay. The whole point of reading those passages was to point out that doctrine coincides with behavior. 
if behavior is wrong, doctrine is not healthy. But you can have healthy doctrine and bad behavior. The two work together. They're not opposed. So let's go back to 1 Timothy 1 and finish out this chapter. Verses 12 through 17. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. If you want a nice assignment, I'll give you one. There are, I believe, four or five times in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus where he says this is a faithful saying. This is but the first of them. So if you want to read these books and find all those faithful sayings and jot those down, that'd be a good exercise. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's put this together. Paul says, I've left you in Ephesus for this reason. Here are some of the issues you're going to face. Teach sound doctrine. Okay? But remember, chapter 1, verse 5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Now, I would remind you that I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Paul offers himself a, as an example. You know, sometimes people say, preachers shouldn't talk about themselves. Well, if they do after the manner of Paul, I think that's a good way to talk about oneself. Paul says, you look at how I used to live and you look at the mercy I obtained. It's a true and faithful say, saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I was the chief of them. So he points to himself as a recipient of God's grace given his former manner of living and he says God can do that for anyone. Anyone. You think you've done bad, Paul says? Look at my life. Look at how I used to live. And then closing out this first chapter, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Imagine your name being read in the assembly. I dare say that Timothy knew, as did the Ephesians, who Hymenaeus and Alexander were. I'd say further that they all knew what they had done. And so Paul gives an urge, a charge. to live right and to not fall into that same trap. Most preachers today don't start congregations as Paul did, but we inherit a ministry that is 
started at an earlier time. For me here, it goes back to at least Water Street, though there are some records indicating that as far back as 1834, there were preachers in this part of Kentucky. But Water Street is the, uh, one of the earliest formed churches. So one of the things that I think is important about ministry, especially one that you inherit, is it really takes some time to get your bearings. And studies have shown that the first five years of any minister's tenure at the same congregation is essentially the church getting used to him, him getting used to the church, and finding whatever the, 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 the balance is that works. And you, you'll notice that in the four-year on Sundays, I'm there, try to greet people. Many of you I've visited in your homes and uh, various other places, some of which neither one of us wanted to be in, such as hospitals or funeral homes. I believe it's important for a preacher to know the folks that they're ministering to and that they're serving. Somebody told me as a piece of advice, they said, you can be the worst preacher from the pulpit ever, but if you love the people and the people love you, if you spend time investing in them, you'll always have a job. Well, I thought, well, let's try and do good at both, you know, but it's very important to, to have that connection. Timothy's challenge entailed a brand of legalism and dispute that bred trouble in the church. So he was also reminded that the mercy of God was so gracious that everybody, like Paul, was in the purview of receiving it. A mother once, and I'll close with this, a mother once had gone to Napoleon and she asked pardon for her son. Her son was a, a soldier that had, well, he had really messed up. So the emperor replied when this mother came and asked for mercy, he said the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. The mother replied, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. And Napoleon's reply was, but your son does not deserve mercy. Sir, she says, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Those folks needed it then. We need it today. Jesus died on that cross for us. And Paul says, if you look at my life, the fact that God gave me his grace and his mercy, though I was the chief of sinners, God wants to have mercy on you too. We receive mercy through Jesus Christ and having faith in him by willing to confess our faith in him that he is the son of God, being buried with him in baptism where our sins are washed away. That begins our walk with Jesus. If you have not yet received that mercy that he longs to offer, come to the front as we stand and as we sing. <laughs>